Hi, my name is Cliff Brangwin uh, from Princeton University and HHMI, and um, I'm happy to tell you about uh, some, some work on uh, the multi-phase liquid behavior of the nucleolus. Um, so, we've been discussing these membraneless nuclear bodies in the first lecture, um, and uh, I'm particularly interested in these kinds of structures, these, uh, these condensates within uh, the context of the nucleus of cells. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that the, the nucleus of the, of the cell, that's the seat of the genome, uh, and all of the organization that takes place within the nucleus is entirely in the absence of any um, membrane-bound uh, vesicle-like organization. So, uh, these membraneless uh, nuclear bodies really are, are key structures uh, for organizing the contents of the nucleus and organizing the genome and gene expression. And they include structures like nucleoli that will be the focus of this talk. Um, other things like transcriptional, uh, these transcriptional factories that are regulating uh, expression of individual genes. Uh, these PML bodies, which are also playing roles in the, the flow of genetic information. Or Cajal bodies and SNRPosomes involved in splicing, again, in gene regulation. Uh, so, we would like to try to understand uh, how these structures form and what role they're playing in, in gene expression and organizing the genome. So, uh, nucleoli, or uh, nucleolus, and, and this plural is nucleoli, these are really fascinating structures. They've, they've been um, known for over 150 years. They're one of the first things that uh, the early microscopists saw when they looked uh, at cells, uh, for example, human cells, like, like these, uh, uh, these HeLa cells. Uh, so, the nucleoli are the dark, uh, large, dark occlusions within the nucleus of, of these individual cells. Um, they're really interesting in, in, in thinking about this flow of genetic information from DNA to RNA to protein, uh, because they're sitting on sites um, uh, where there's active transcription of the ribosomal RNA genes. So, they're really important for the transcription of ribosomal RNA, and the ribosome is the machine that actually makes protein ultimately in the cytoplasm, so they're also important for uh, the step from RNA to protein. And so, the way we think about the nucleolus is... It's this membraneless condensate that is um, helping to facilitate the, the numerous reactions that are required for processing these ribosomal RNA transcripts uh, to, to ultimately form these uh, mature preribosomal particles and, and ultimately the, the ribosome, uh, this, this protein translational machine. So, um, we, we started thinking about the nucleolus, uh, uh, you know, r- right after the initial studies we did on, on pea granules that I told you about in the last talk. Uh, the nucleolus, um, you know, as this large membraneless uh, condensate, we, we were wondering if it, if it, you know, could be thought of as a, as a liquid phase-separated assembly in cells. So, um, a postdoc in my lab, Steph Weber, who's now a faculty member uh, at McGill University, started to tackle this question using C. elegans as a model system. And this movie shows uh, cycles of assembly and disassembly of the individual nuclei within the developing C. elegans embryo. And what you see is that the uh, nuclear proteins are condensing out of the nucleoplasm into many of these uh, droplets, and then resolving ultimately around the two sites in C. elegans where ribosomal RNA is being actively transcribed. And so, work from Steph, as well as our collaborators, Miko Hatai and Joel Berry, um, led to um, a, 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 a mapping where we were able to show that the, the dynamics of the assembly of the nucleolus um, are, uh, can be well described using 
classical theories of phase separation, in particular, uh, this Kahn-Hilliard formalism, which is a kind of uh, a way of describing what is the uphill diffusion that is, uh, that is required for phase separation to sort of overcome that entropic effect that we talked about in the last lecture. Um, so nucleoli really are, um, you know, a, t a type of liquid condensate. And actually, the first study that we did was, was in this uh, frog oocyte system to look at these uh, nucleoli and to start to ask these kinds of questions about what they are as biophysical objects and, and how to think about their assembly and, and, and structure and so forth. Um, uh, the Xenopus levis is, is a really powerful system. It's a, it's a, um, it forms an oocyte or, or um, an egg that is ready to be fertilized. It, it, when it's very large, so it's about a millimeter in size. Um, it contains a single large nucleus that's um, uh, also quite large, about 600 microns in diameter. And inside this large nucleus, there are numerous, actually hundreds or up to a thousand uh, nucleoli, which you can see in these individual uh, droplets, droplet-looking structures within, uh, within. And so this was a powerful system for us be because we could really start to interrogate these biophysical uh, properties uh, within this large nucleus that contains many nucleoli. And what we showed was that these nucleoli, when we... Uh, push them together, they, they fuse. If we start to pull them apart, they'll actually undergo these liquid bridge rupture events, which you see in this movie. Um, and this allowed us to start to measure the, the properties, the viscosity and surface tension of these structures to really show that they were liquid-like. Um, but there's an interesting twist to this, which is that um, this liquidity, this fluidity, um, is dependent on non-equilibrium biological processes um, uh, that are occurring through, throughout the cell. Um, and so this is uh, showing that uh, if, we, if we deplete the cell of ATP, which is kind of the battery of the cell, then the uh, apparent viscosity of these structures goes up significantly. So there seems to be um, features of non-equilibrium dynamics that are regulating the fluidity of these structures. And we, that's why we refer to them as active liquids, a kind of active liquid condensate. Um, in the spirit of asking the very simplest question that we can think of, uh, in, in starting out our research, here we asked the question, if these are really liquids, if, if uh, these are liquid uh, condensates within the nucleus of this frog, uh, of this frog oocyte, then why don't they all fuse into a single larger structure? Uh, why are they remaining as distinct droplets when I showed that if, you know, if we push them together, they seem to readily fuse? So why aren't they all fusing into one large droplet? And that's, a, that's a, clearly a very simple question, and, and I think it, it's, uh, it's, it's powerful, and it has led us down some interesting roads. Um, so in, in trying to answer that question, I want to introduce you to some uh, very fundamental ideas that are important in many areas uh, of cell biology that are important to think about. Um, so Brownian motion um, was first described by, by Robert Brown in this uh, really... Uh, a classic and very interesting, highly recommended uh, paper from 1828. Um, so in this paper, he describes um, the, the random motion of pollen particles and other kinds of particles inside of a cell and, and the way in which they undergo um, a, a random walk when viewed in the microscope. Uh, the paper is really fascinating for a number of reasons. One of them is he's clearly very disappointed when he discovers that uh, the, the, the motion he sees is, is, is actually doesn't have anything to do with life in the sense that um, even, you know, ground up uh, bits of quartz and, and other dead materials undergo Brownian motion. 
And so he, he was pretty upset about that. Of course, it, it's laughable now because we now recognize this as an absolutely uh, fundamental concept uh, that's important not only for non-living materials, but also within the cell. Um, and so these are, uh, this is a movie of uh, particles that are undergoing this Brownian motion, these random thermal fluctuations um, within uh, a, a solution of water. And so the idea here is that the random uh, energy that, that, that it, it, one can think about as KT of energy, that, that thermal energy scale that we talked about before, um, is kicking around these particles and, and causing them to undergo a, a, random, a random walk. Now, there's some interesting mathematical features of, of, of the way in which this works that I want to draw to your attention. Um, first off, Brownian motion is different than directed motion. So directed motion is if you're walking in a straight line or if you're driving you know, in a straight highway and you're just driving along. So um, in directed motion, um, we can think about if we're moving at a steady speed or velocity, um, if, we, uh, if we go for twice the amount of time, then we have traveled twice the distance. That sort of makes sense. You know, you, you sit in the car twice as long, you move at the same speed, you've gone twice as far. And so if I were to ask you about the square of this quantity, um, what is the square of the displacement, then I would say, okay, well, it, I just square both sides of this equation and I have some v squared prefactor, and then I have uh, the time squared, and that makes perfect sense. So if I you know, wait twice as long, uh, then the square of the distance should be, you know, should be four times uh, right, as large. Now what's interesting is for diffusive motion, the square of the distance is, does not go like the square of the time, but it only goes linearly with time. So, um, so th th that's pretty interesting then. If I wait twice as long, I don't, I, I, you know, the, 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 this, uh, this quantity, this delta x squared, isn't a factor of four larger, it's only a factor of two larger. And so um, the prefactor here is called the diffusion coefficient. It's something like the velocity, uh, but, but a little bit different, has different units. Um, in general, this idea, though, that directed motion has uh, the, the, mean, the mean squared displacement, delta x squared, going like uh, time squared versus diffusive motion, where it just goes like time, you can have something in between in some cases. So in general, we would write the square of the displacement goes like time to some power alpha, which we'll call the diffusive exponent. So what we often do is take movies like the one you saw here with the beads and then plot the square of the displacement, mean square displacement, or MSD, uh, on this log plot, log log plot, and the slope then is this diffusive exponent. So you can see, this is actually data from a movie just like that one here, and you can see that the mean square displacement is linear um, as a function of time on this log-log plot, and that says that the diffusive exponent is 1, which is exactly what we expect for the, you know, for the simple description of, of Brownian diffusion. So it's important to keep these ideas in mind in what I'm going to tell you next, um, because what we tried to do in, in this system, in, in addressing the question of um, why these droplets all don't fuse with one another is we asked, could we introduce probe particles into the nucleus of this cell and ask, are they free to move around? So as, as little probes of the environment, um, uh, something like the droplets, and, and, and asking whether they're free to move around. This we call microreology. Uh, that's a term. Rheology is the study of the flow and deformation behavior in materials. Microreology is, is, is that just on a microscopic scale. So a really talented graduate student in my lab, who's now, now a postdoc at NIH, Marina Ferrick, 
um, injected uh, small probe particles into the nucleus. So these are inert uh, little beads, microscopic beads, injected into the nucleus and asked, are those beads free to diffuse around or not? Are they constrained in some way? Um, and so what Marina found is, you know, in, in the initial study, she said, well, it's, it, they don't actually look particularly constrained. If I put in really small particles, these are 0.2 micron, 200 nanometer beads, injected into this nucleus, this GV, or germinal vesicle, what she found is that the beads actually seem to be dancing around and undergoing what really looks like Brownian motion, so they seem pretty free to move around. Uh, so that, at first, was surprising. We said, well, if that's happening, then why aren't these, uh, you know, these uh, liquid condensates diffusing around as well? And we said, well, let's look at uh, different size beads and ask what happens. So, um, again, at the, if, I, if I plot the mean squared displacement of these very small beads, um, just like what I showed you before, you see that there's this linear dependence on the time. So the diffusive exponent here I would call 1. Um, but as we go to larger and larger bead sizes, what you see is that exponent goes down. So the slope of the curve comes down and down and down. Um, and so there seems to be increasing constraint on the motion of the particles as we get to larger and larger particle sizes. And you can see that here in the, in the uh, position traces of the beads. The small beads really kind of just undergo Brownian motion diffusing around. As you get to larger particles, we see this intermittency where they seem to be hopping maybe between pores, if you like. Uh, and then the largest particles really are starting to be highly constrained uh, within, within the nucleus. And so if I plot the, the slope of those curves, that diffusive exponent, as a function of the size of the particles, I see this very clear... Uh, trail-off, so it goes from um, a diffusive exponent close to 1, close to simple diffusion for small particles, but for larger particles it comes down. Um, so, again, consistent with some kind of constraint on the motion of the particles once they are, are larger than a certain size, which, uh, you know, is something like a couple hundred nanometers, 0.2 microns. Um, so, we started thinking about this, so it looks like the particles are constrained by some network uh, that, that has a, a size scale that's a few hundred nanometers. In fact, the data that we got in this, in this system looks a lot like some data that other folks had seen um, in looking at similar bead motion in purified networks that are reconstituted uh, from the protein actin and the filaments that actin forms. So actin forms these beautiful uh, filamentous networks. And if you put particles in there, you saw really the same type of thing, where if the particles... Um, are large compared to the, the, the average spacing between the filaments, then the motion is highly constrained. You can see here in this, in this black, uh, this black uh, uh, curve on the bottom. And if the, if the particles um, are much smaller than the average mesh size uh, of, of the network, then you have something that looks like diffusive motion, as you can see in this, uh, this top, top curve. We also see in these data the intermittency of the hopping between the different states. So we started to wonder... Well, maybe there's a cytoskeletal network like actin that's inside the nucleus. And th that would be a little bit surprising, though, because actin is well-known uh, in the cytoplasm, but usually not thought of as, as being so important structurally inside the nucleus. Um, and so we started to wonder about that. Is it possible that the motion of these beads is constrained by some kind of a network? Maybe it's even a nuclear actin network uh, within, this, within this nucleus. And so the, the picture then would be that the small beads are able to kind of move around in the interstices, but the big beads are, are sort of trapped within this network. So we tried to test that idea, 
and the, 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 the key experiment was then, well, let's try to bust up the actin network and see what happens to the motion of these beads. And so we did that experiment. Um, and if this were a live audience, I might ask the audience, you know, what you'd expect. So what do you expect? You can ponder for a moment. Um, if you've been listening to the last few slides, then you, you would say, well, the diffusive exponent should be one if it's simple diffusion. So if I if it's an actin network and I were to bust up the actin network, then this curve should basically all go up to one. All those points should be up around a diffusive exponent of one. So we did this experiment. Uh, you, it turns out there's a number of ways we can, we can disrupt um, an actin network, and we tried all of them. And what we saw very consistently was in all cases, the, um, the bead motion now exhibited a, a diffusive exponent that was consistent with simple diffusion in the absence of any uh, elastic constraint. So all the beads now were able to diffuse around freely within, uh, within this uh, nucleus. So it really does look like there's a nuclear actin network uh, that's, that's forming a scaffold within this nucleus. Now, uh, this was all to study the mechanics and structure using these probe particles. The real key question at this point is, what about the embedded uh, RNA protein droplets? What about these nuclear condensates that are sitting inside this actin network? And by the way, this is a, a, a picture that gives you a nice visual of the network. Uh, you might say, well, why didn't we just look at that picture in the first place? And the reason for that is because uh, there's some controversy around how one visualizes this and is, is this uh, really representative of, of the network. Uh, but this, this is what the network looks like, and that's consistent with all the data I just showed you. So we have these droplets, these nucleoli, uh, the red uh, uh, droplets that are sitting within this network, uh, and 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 you know and apparently constrained within the network. So the question that we then had was, well, what happens to these structures when we disrupt the actin? So w what happens to the nucleoli? Um, and so we did an experiment uh, where we disrupted this actin network and then looked not at the beads but now at the nucleoli, which are labeled in green here. And something, I think, pretty remarkable happened that we, that we were really fascinated by. So we often were looking um, at these samples in the microscope where we're looking down and showing movies, looking down the cameras uh, projecting to a plane like this. Um, but what we decided to do was look from the side. So we were able to make stacks of, of these images and look from the side. And this is a movie then looking at from the side um, what happens when we disrupt this actin network. And I'll show you that it's pretty remarkable. What happens is the nucleoli within this nucleus all come crashing down to the bottom of the nucleus, apparently sedimenting under gravitational forces. So that's really surprising then and interesting because we usually think about gravity as being negligible within living cells. Um, but in this case, apparently that's, that's not true. So the actin network is, uh, seems to be holding these nucleoli in place and when we get rid of it, they all come crashing down to the bottom. So that was genuinely surprising to us. Um, and, and so it's also, um, it's also interesting if you, if you let the system sit for long enough, these nucleoli, when they do come crashing down to the bottom, they all coalesce uh, into what, I, what, what may very well be the world's largest nucleolus. Uh, this, this structure is now um, uh, about you know, 100 plus microns in diameter. It's, it's larger than, than many individual cells. Um, and so all, all of the nuclear droplets have coalesced at the bottom uh, when we disrupted the actin network. So 
Um, so why is gravity important? You know, why do we usually ignore gravity in cells, but in this case, it seems to be important? Um, so it turns out the physics of this is really interesting. Um, so there's something called the gravitational length scale. It goes by different names. Some people refer to it as a gravitational Peclet number. Um, it reflects the competition between gravity and the random thermal fluctuations uh, that, that want to randomize uh, uh, the positions of these particles. That's an entropic effect, which you'll remember from uh, the first lecture, where entropy, uh, you know, the, this thermal energy scale, KT, basically kicks everything around and wants it well mixed. So that would tend to have particles that would fluff up and, and distribute evenly. But gravity, if, if each of these particles has a mass, wants to pull the particles down to the surface. So there's a competi competition between those two effects. Um, and that gives rise to this, uh, what, what I'm calling the L subgravity, the gravitational length scale. So KT is an energy scale. It has units of energy. And mg, mass times the gravitational acceleration, that's a force. So an energy divided by a force is a length scale. And so this length scale is basically the, the length scale over which the concentration profile decays um, a, as you get up uh, higher and higher. Now, uh, the, the physics of this that I'm describing is exactly why the atmosphere thins out at high altitude. So, um, you know, uh, if one is on the third, fourth, or 25th story of a building, you usually don't notice that the atmosphere is any thinner. And so why is that? Well, that's because, you know, if I think about if I'm in the second story of a house or, you know, even a tall building, the, the size of that, the height of that building is smaller than this gravitational length scale for something like oxygen. So I could put in the mass of oxygen and these other things, uh, you know, room temperature and so forth, and I'll get a gravitational length scale that's something like a mile plus. So I don't notice the atmosphere thinning out at high altitude, but I will notice if I go climb a tall mountain or, you know, fly into La Paz, Bolivia, for example, uh, I will notice that the atmosphere is much thinner, and, and, and that's because now we're starting to approach or even exceed, potentially, this, this length scale. So that same physics, remarkably, is at play and, and relevant within these cells. So we think we usually ignore gravity within cells because uh, the idea is that cells in general are smaller than this gravitational length scale for any of the structures that we'd be considering. Uh, the one change we would make to this equation is instead of mass, we would put a, a, buoyant, uh, a buoyant mass, so some volume times a density difference. Um, in in, the, in the, these very large uh, frog oocytes, what seems to be happening is the cell has gotten so large that it's now exceeding this gravitational length scale for these structures, and now gravity really becomes important. We can actually quantify this, um, and with all the measurements we've done, um, we can determine the gravitational length scales and, and, and figure all of this out and make what I'll call a state diagram for this. And what this shows is that for large cells, um, here we're plotting it as a function of the, the relevant compartment, which is the nucleus, but I could also put it as a function of cells, um, gravity starts to become important um, uh, as you get larger and larger. And so this is kind of, I think, a, a really interesting... Uh, system, and it's a place where there's some fun uh, physics at play, uh, which uh, were sort of unexpected and, and, until we, we started making these observations and, and this discovery. Now, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and tell you about s some um, other really interesting uh, uh, observations that we made in this system. 
Now, the graduate student Marina Ferrick that I mentioned earlier, in the course of these experiments where she was disrupting the actin network and looking at how the nucleoli all coalesce with one another, uh, you know, forming this kind of world record sized nucleolus, um, what she noticed is that um, the nucleoli coalesce in a very interesting way if we start to label, um, fluorescently label the different sub uh, parts of the nucleolus. So this is a movie that I'll show you where we've labeled one set of proteins in green. Uh, that's this uh, protein fibrillarin, which is a protein associated with uh, the inner core of the nucleolus. And another set of proteins uh, I'm labeling here, nucleophosmin, which is associated with this outer layer of nuclear proteins. And what Marina noticed is that when she disrupts the actin network and lets these nucleoli all coalesce with one another, uh, they, they indeed form droplets that, that, that get larger and larger, but, um, but the, the core as well, this fibrillarin-rich core uh, within the nucleus also coalesce with one another. So it's as if we have a liquid within a liquid. And you can see that even better in these images. Um, these are um, high-resolution images within, uh, within, within the, uh, the cell after we've let them all coalesce. You really have this sense that the, the fibrillarin-rich uh, proteins form a core, uh, a liquid within the nucleophosmin-rich uh, outer liquid. And so this is kind of a, a really interesting idea, and we start to think about what it means um, and, and how to understand it from a molecular biophysical perspective. Now, some other work uh, we've been doing, we, we had uh, been able to show that when we take fibrillarin, this, this core-associated protein, and purify it, uh, it phase separates into these beautiful liquid droplets. And that may be not so surprising based on what I, I, I told you in the last lecture, because fibrillarin has uh, significant stretch, which is a conformationally heterogeneous, this intrinsically disordered region, which we think are really driving phase separation. And so we'd shown that it forms these nice liquid droplets. What about the other proteins? So um, for that work, we collaborated with Richard Kroaki and Deanna Matreya at St. Jude, who had been working with nucleophosmin in vitro with a purified system. And they had shown that nucleophosmin phase separates into this, these nice liquid droplets in vitro. And so we said, hey, let's just do what is a simple and obvious experiment and take these two samples and mix them and ask what happens. And when we did that, quite remarkably, I think, what we found is that um, the fibrillarin-rich droplets and the nucleophosmin-rich droplets are relatively immiscible with one another. They do not mix with one another. And instead, we get this, what I would call, a three-phase system. There's a, the dark region here would be a low concentration phase of, it has some nucleophosmin and some fibrillarin. Uh, the green puncta in, inside here are a fibrillarin-rich liquid phase, and the red or sort of orange-colored um, outer phase is a, is a nucleophosmin-rich phase. So this is really, I think, quite remarkable, and it's remarkable for a few reasons. One of them is that um, the, this purified protein system essentially completely recapitulates the in vivo uh, organization of these structures. So in vivo, recall that we have fibrillarin-rich uh, liquid-like uh, droplets within a nucleophosmin-rich outer layer, and that's exactly what the in vitro purified system looks like. So uh, we thought that was, that was pretty, pretty incredible. We, very simple system of a um, small number of protein and RNA components. We've, we've been able to recapitulate this core shell architecture um, of, of the nucleolus. Now, the idea of 
liquid immiscibility having uh, multiple immiscible liquid phases or non-mixable liquid phases is, is itself something that is well known in uh, chemical engineering and physical chemistry and soft matter communities. Uh, this is just a, a, an example of some immiscible liquids that one can, for, uh, can form from uh, you know, non-living organic solvents and water and oils um, where you can get uh, these, these things that, that, that do not mix with one another. So we can have phase separation then not just of, of uh, uh, forming two phases but actually forming many phases and the way in which those phases interact is quite interesting and, and sort of a rich set of physics that uh, is yet to be completely understood. Um, one of the questions that we asked in doing these experiments is why would fibrillarin droplets be on the inside? So in other words, why, why is the green inside the red? Why isn't the red inside the green, for example? That would, that would be uh, seemingly just as valid. Um, there, you'd have immiscibility. They're not mixing with one another. Um, from the biology perspective, that would uh, probably be um, a problem because the, the processes that are associated with fibrillarin and the fibrillarin dense, uh, condensed state um, take place first. And, and the idea is that those RNA transcripts are processed in, in a sequential fashion inside to outside. So if the order weren't right, then that would probably cause uh, problems for the bio biology. Um, so why is it that fibrillarin knows that it's supposed to be on the inside uh, and nucleophosmin and, and those components know that they're supposed to be on the outside. Well, it turns out that a key to answering that question comes from surface tension. So, as the name implies, surface tension is a kind of tension associated with surfaces or interfaces between two different uh, types of phases. Um, in particular, it's really it's an energy cost associated with having an interface, and it, it actually has units of energy per unit area. You can think about this in a, in a simple, the simple schematic uh, as reflecting um, the fact that molecules within a bulk phase are sort of experiencing a homogeneous environment surrounded by, um, by uh, you know, a particular set of molecules. But, but at the interface, there's this kind of, uh, you know, on one side, they're, they're seeing the homogeneous phase. On the other side, they're seeing this external environment. And that sets up an energy cost. The, the manifestation of surface tension is, is something that we're all familiar with by looking at things like water-walking bugs uh, or the, the fact that we can, in some, some cases, get uh, paper clips to actually float on water because of these surface tension effects. Or if you were to wash your car um, and, and uh, put some wax on the car, for example, and then watch the, 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 the water droplets would beat up on that surface. Those are all surface tension effects, the energy of interfaces between different phases. And it turns out that surface tension um, is, 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 is really well known to be key in structuring multi-phase liquids. So in particular, um, if for multi-phase systems from, from non-living matter, we know that, um, that, that to have this kind of a core shell organization of a three-phase system, the surface tension between phase three, this green phase, and phase one, the black phase, would, would have to be large. So if that surface tension, the energy associated with that interface is very large, then the system can minimize the energy by, by making that interface go away. In other words, by having the green phase within the red phase. And then there's no longer any interface between you know, one and three. You can do a very simple experiment. So Marina actually did this uh, really simple 
sort of ex- experiment you can do in your kitchen by taking uh, water, Crisco oil, and silicone oil um, and showing that because the water-silicone oil interface, the, the tension, the surface tension is, is large, larger than that between the water and the Crisco oil, the, the red stuff, then um, the silicone oil gets embedded within the, the, the Crisco oil. So we had a prediction that, uh, that the core shell architecture, the core shell organization we see with the nucleolus, uh, was reflecting these differential surface tensions. To try to test that idea, we took the purified proteins that form these, these liquids and asked, how do they interact with surfaces of different hydrophobicity so that we could try to understand uh, the relative strength uh, of their interactions, the favorability for interactions with water versus with oil. And so we took a surface that's relatively hydrophobic. This is not a strongly hydrophobic surface, but relatively hydrophobic. And, and we looked from the side, again, kind of visualizing from the side, at how these droplets in, interact with the surface. What we found is that the nucleophosmin uh, droplets tend to behave like water in that they t- uh, tend to beat up on these relatively hydrophobic surfaces, where the fibrillarin-rich droplets tend to more, better wet uh, the, these hydrophobic surfaces. And that's all consistent with the idea that the surface tension between fibrillarin, the green stuff, and water is larger than that between nucleophosmin, the red stuff, and, and, and water. And that's why the green droplets are embedded within the red, just like you see in the schematic here. And so um, this idea of surface tension and surface tension structuring um, of multiphase liquids has implications, I think, much beyond the nucleolus, which is the system you know, we've been studying to, to elucidate these ideas. Um, in particular, if the interface um, and the surface tension between two different phases, let's say between uh, phase three and phase two, the red and green, if that's really energetically costly, in other words, anytime red is next to green, there's a huge energy cost, um, then what happens is these, these two types of liquids just will never interact. They won't touch each other at all. Um, and so that's probably why many of the condensates in cells um, actually don't interact at all. They're, they're, they're sort of not sticking to one another, not wetting one another, not engulfing one another, and so forth. Um, in other cases, though, there can be partial wet wetting, where the surface tensions are roughly of the same, same uh, magnitude, and then you can have droplets that are not fully engulfing one another, but they're interacting, um, and you can have morphologies that look like this. Um, we think this is important because there are many structures in the cell where there's partial interaction between these condensates. For example, in this beautiful micrograph from Joe Gall um, showing Cajal bodies and snurposomes and the sort of partial uh, wetting, uh, these kind of well-defined contact angles and so forth that, that uh, one can start to use to, to measure uh, the surface tensions uh, between these droplets and, and between the droplets and, and the surrounding uh, nucleoplasm in this case. So in this talk, I've tried to convey to you some of the excitement uh, about the nucleolus and, more generally, um, the idea that these condensed states of biomolecular matter are important uh, within the nucleus. Um, The nucleolus is just one uh, type of these structures. Uh, We focused on quite a bit because it's the largest uh, of the nuclear bodies. But there are really dozens of different types of these things inside, inside of the nucleus, and in fact, we, we think that the nucleolus probably is a hypertrophied example of the kind of uh, phase separation and the way in which the, the condensates that form are impacting the genome and, and potentially playing a really important role in the flow of genetic information. Um, uh, we can think about the, 
these condensates as something like the condensation um, of water uh, on this on this uh, spider web that can deform the spider web and 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 um, uh, and actually uh, restructure it in some way. And so those are the kinds of questions that we're starting to address. And uh, there's a lot of excitement in this field in thinking about uh, about these ideas moving forward. So how do liquid condensates impact genome architecture and activity? So how might they be playing a key role in uh, regulating the expression of genes that give rise to the traits of an organism, the you know, hair color and, and eye color, uh, height, weight, uh, number of arms and legs and toes, and all of those sorts of things that really um, make uh, biology so interesting that we can go from genes to, to, to traits. Um, how do, do these transitions, so that, you know, I've talked a lot about the, uh, in the last talk as well, about the transitions between liquid states and solid states, these liquids and gels and amyloids, do transitions between those different states of biomolecular matter play a role in gene regulation? So it's really a fascinating question. We have uh, very little knowledge about that, and I think that's going to be one of the key questions uh, going forward in this area um, at, at the interface of, of uh, soft matter physics, cell biology, uh, genetics, and, and probably a n- number of other fields. Um, so um, uh, there's a lot of excitement right now, and, and, and uh, we're, we're, we're going to be uh, happy to, to see this move forward. I want to thank you for your attention. Um, it's it's uh, been really a, a pleasure to, to work with some of the folks. I mentioned Marina Ferrick, a, a former grad student. Uh, we've got a really wonderful set of people in the lab. And I've been fortunate uh, to interact with a lot of really brilliant collaborators. Uh, very grateful for that and, and the funding that has helped make uh, some of the work we're doing in our lab possible. Um, thank you so much for your attention.